By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam and Golf. So today we are joined by Rick Fair. He's coming to us from Washington State, correct, Rick? That's correct. Yeah, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, we've had some interactions on Twitter over the years, Rick, and we had a an interaction a few weeks ago where I was like, all right, it's time for this guy to come on the show and talk to us because I, I think you have, as I was saying before we started recording, you fit the mold of someone, I think your experience in the game as a player and now as a teacher gives you a super unique perspective. So we're, we're glad to talk with you today. Well, thanks for having me on. Look forward to it. All right. So let me just first get into, so Rick is a, you are the director of instruction at Aldera Club, correct? In yeah, Washington Aldera State? Golf Club. Yeah. And how long have you been teaching in general? Teaching in general combined, let's see, about 11 years. Okay. Let me tell people quickly about Rick's playing record here. You played a little golf back in the day. I'll go over some of his highlights. So you were pretty damn good junior player, a national champion at 16. You then went to BYU, won a Division I national championship your first year as a team, two-time All-American, won some tournaments there. You won the Western Amateur Medalist and Match Play, which is – that's still – Considered one of the top amateur tournaments in the country, right, Rick? I believe so. Yeah. I'd, yeah, that, that's a big I'd one. I'd target that one <laughs> if I was a young man today. Yeah. 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 You were a semifinalist in the U.S. Amateur, Walker Cup team member, and also the low amateur in the U.S. Open and Masters in the same year. Then you went to play on the PGA Tour. You played for 17 years, quite a nice long career, nine second place finishes, and two wins. So that's pretty good. You played some good golf. Yeah, obviously I was fortunate. It's a razor thin margin to accomplish what I did, and maybe Adam back. You know, there's a razor thin margin between guys that actually have that 17 year career and the guys that never get there. So I I was very fortunate. So my first, I mean, generic question is: How has your perspective changed from playing at the highest level to now teaching 
I'm assuming you teach all levels of golfers, correct? That's correct. So, you know, your, your philosophy seems a bit different than most instructors out there, but give us a little understanding of, of what changed as a player, meaning, you know, someone who had the pressure on you and thinking about your golf swing every week to now how you view game improvement. Was there a big shift that happened? Yeah, it was more, I would say it more accurately evolved. And I think that uh, most coaches who really have a passion for helping golfers and improving our skills as coaches, I'm not the same coach I was in 2003. I'm very, very inquisitive and curious. And now there's so much content and so much available and so much new research that helps us as coaches if we're seeking it to become more efficient. I would say that when I started, it would be like starting a new job and a new career. It's like, oh, I'm scared to death. I've never (laughs) taught somebody how to play before. I think it's not too much different than today. It's like, well, I need the technology because that's just a, that's like an entry fee to have a track man or a launch monitor with me. And of course, there's always been video. There's all, so I got sucked into kind of at that time, probably more of a swing coach sort of context where line them up, book the lessons, get out there, give them a tip or two and send them on their way. And I still do quite a bit of that because teaching at a a private club, a lot of our members aren't really interested in playing the champions tour, the PGA tour, going off to a D one college. They're getting ready for the member guest in two weeks. I do need to provide a quick fix, so to speak, if I can, but I'd say over time, I try not to use the instructor teacher phrases often, you know, it's more of a coaching where originally I was narrow. I had a limited set of experiences as an instructor or coach. So I realized I had a lot to learn. So I, I started that journey. And so I've added sort of to my knowledge base, as well as the experience to make me more effective. And I'm kind of long winded here, but I back about five or six years ago, I decided that every year I was going to choose a subject area that's relevant to coaching and dive deep. And because I didn't have a background in biomechanics and physics and all of that, I got myself a level of education and a certification just so I understand the physics of the golf swing and, and all of that. And then I moved on to how do people learn? How do we get performance out of these athletes and, and on it goes. So, so I've become, a, I think all of us, we, we'd like to think we're a better coach or instructor down the road. And so I've just, passionately. And I suppose it's the same competitive or kind of the same drive that when I was a player, I was driven to continue to improve and play better. I think I carried that into my coaching. You were you were quite instinctive as a player, I believe. Maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but your, when you were learning the game, what was your level of instruction that you received? And then obviously, once you transitioned to a coach, as you said, it's kind of daunting a little bit because now, if, especially if you're an instinctive player, you're getting thrown all this information about how to coach and you're like, well, I'm a good player and I didn't even think of this. So what do I do with this information? So to start with your level of instruction as a, as a player, what you received. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to have access to a golf course. My my father is a was an excellent player for many years, a 21-time club champion at our course, but he made no attempt to coach me. So he put me under the auspices of our head golf professional, Ron Hagen. And Ron was a head golf pro. He, he gave lessons, but he was not a full-time instructor. But he showed me how to put my hands on the golf club and gave me a – that was back in the era. I think he taught me toe up to toe up 
you know, kind of that, that move. And then I was set free and I played a ton of golf. I just played a lot of golf and I would say pretty self-taught and I was curious, okay, how do I get a ball to curve this way? Or how do I get it to go higher? And I didn't have anybody telling me to do it, how to do it. I figured it out. So sorry. So every week on tour, when you're going from stop to stop to stop, you weren't one of those guys who was trying to get the swing doctor advice all the time. You were just trying to figure it out based on your ball flight and working backwards type deal. Yes, absolutely. And that was, I played in an era where there weren't tour coaches or swing <laughs> coaches. Swing <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so the range was consisted of players and caddies and maybe a few reps and obviously that's changed, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly struggles, right? There's, there's times you're, if it's feeling easy and you're flushing it and you can hit whatever ball flight you want. And then there's those periods of time where, okay, we're, it's not quite at that level. So we're going to our B games and how do we manage it? For me, I, I think that it was trial and error. And I, in my coaching, now, I try to sell it. You guys, I need to bring you along with me because I think you feel the same way, but there's a, a lot of golfers I work with. There's just this incredible resistance to experimentation. You know, it's like they just, they're trying to be perfect. And it's like, yeah, you're slicing the heck out of it. Let's see some hooks. Let's, you know, just some people will, they'll figure it out. It is a, quite honestly, it's a challenge to the coaching model because, you know, I don't want to create dependency. You know, I'd love for people to figure it out and go off and just report back with the good play. But, but for me, I, at my best, and I don't know why I wandered from this, I suppose, as we reflect on our lives, there's a lot of, we wonder why did we make a certain decision? But, but for me at my best, if I went out on the practice tee and I could hit it solid, I could hit one high, I could hit one low. I could curve it one way and then curve it the other. It's time to go go catch a movie or something, you know, extra, any more time on the range, as it turns out, became counterproductive, right? Because the mind drifts into technique and that sort of thing. So obviously that's me as, you know, at the time, you know, one of the better players in the world or whatever, but I think it's relevant to your listeners too, who aren't at that level that, that there may not be a secret, but you got to manage your game around. And I had tournaments where I was struggling on the practice tee on a Wednesday and ended up close to winning a golf tournament. So, you know, that's a kind of a self-awareness thing that people that play a lot of golf can maybe figure that out on their own. To your point on that, I I told you before we started that I was going to bring this up. We don't have to make it controversial, but I thought it was an interesting comment you made. So I tweeted something about saying, I don't believe people learning more about the golf swing will necessarily make them a better golfer. If anything, I think it can make them worse. I think a lot of golfers go out there trying to read every book that was ever written on the golf swing and assume, well, the more knowledge I collect, the better golfer I'm going to become. And of course, that's much easier to do with YouTube and everything else now. And you responded and you were a little vague, but you said that something similar happened in your career and you think it cost you millions of dollars. So do you care to expand on that point? You kind of alluded to it before that maybe you drifted towards the technical stuff, maybe? Yeah, I, I, and I believe that. And, and again, millions were took a whole lot longer to, to earn the millions back in my day. But uh, so. Yeah, so you, you're talking about winning maybe 10 or 15 more times, right. something like that. Yeah, yeah. My first winner's check had five figures. You know, so <laughs> things have changed, but I win. This is the, I think with even amateur players and, and recreational golfers, I guess the warning would be that, you know, we're very vulnerable when we're struggling, 
right? The confidence goes down and whatever. So I went through my first kind of extended slump. And I can't remember if it was three or four months where I missed the majority of the cuts or whatever it was. So I began questioning what I do, how I did things. And I was well aware that the top of my swing, my wrist was in flexion or to me, it's just, yeah, my wrist is not like Ben Hogan and the face looks shut. (laughs) So anyway, and I happened to seek out help from a top instructor and I was vulnerable and open to anything, ideas, and I didn't have the filter to run it through that I have now. And a well-intentioned coach, you know, thought, well, gosh, yeah, if we, more of your misses are left, let's fix your wrist position and club face. And I worked for months and months and months and months to get it just right. And I got there Then I had no idea how to deliver the club face from that position. So I went through, you know, a pretty extensive struggle and I never got back to hitting it the same way again. My career went on for another eight years or so. And I even won at a second win in there, but it wasn't because of the change I had made. It was because I knew how to play the game and compete and had strengths in other areas. And then I, the weeks I hit it well, I capitalized, but I didn't have a consistent trusted shot pattern that obviously is going to highly influence how I coach, right? That now I know that, gosh, if I'd gone and seen by either one of you guys, but let's say Butch Harmon and wrote him a check for a big number, he would have just said, hey, Rick, all the great players have primarily hit fades from that wrist position. And I was playing a draw. So rather than changing the wrist position, I might have changed kind of the shot I was trying to hit, and I probably would have done really well. Do you think you kind of went away from your golf swing DNA and it didn't feel natural to you anymore? Oh, yeah. Was that the feeling you had? Yeah, it entirely disrupted that. But quite frankly, I didn't even know what my golf swing DNA was. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, I just played the game and hit shots. And certainly I knew that cause and effect and ball flight and all of that sort of thing. And, and I think that a golfer, I believe, can, if they frame what they do around those things. And, you know, as Adam, as you said, hey, if, if you're not hitting a solid, go out and try to make center contact, right? So I think it was very simplistic for me. I think I was a strong enough critical thinker to figure things out on my own, the cause and effect. And if I walk down the fairway and the ball's laying in a divot, I don't need to look behind the ropes and kind of signal to my coach, what the heck do I do? (laughs) It's like, okay, how do I make contact when the ball's sitting in a sandy divot? And how, you know, and a lot of that has to do with, I think I was open to trying new things. And I was very creative in the way I practiced. I mean, I'd throw the ball in every different lie I could find. And just figured stuff out. So anyway, I just think, yeah, I did lose the feels, so to speak, right? So I'm having to learn. And I know Malcolm Gladwell's kind of retreated from the 10,000 hour thing, but it's like I had an awful lot of hours logged hitting a golf ball from a certain position, right? And I happen to believe that that club face orientation dictates most everything we do. And, you know, when we disrupt that, I think the game changes and I just very, I had to relearn some things. It's hard to find that balance as an instructor between giving information without, you know, opening up the black box, so to speak, especially with a good player like yourself, you know, you, you have a way of hitting it. You've shown success with the way that you, you're hitting it. There's probably less of a risk with an amateur golfer to do that, but it's still there. They can still hit good shots. And when you start to, 
if you open up that hole for them, the rabbit hole, they can they can go very far down it. But you know, I've in terms of what you're saying about how you're creative, I always try to start at least with the basic information of well, you know, this is how the club strikes the ball. So, you know, all good players have this ball, then turf strike. You give them feedback of how they know if they're doing that. Maybe a spray line on the ground or place a tee next to the ball. You can summarize direction to club face control for most golfers. I mean, yes, obviously we understand swing path has an influence on the shape, but ultimately you can swing left or right and still get a ball onto the target. And then there's sweet spot strike as well. You know, there's so many golfers. I played with some this, this week who they'd hit a bad shot and it's voodoo to them. I look at it and I go, well, obviously they just struck it out of the shank of the club. They look at it as what just happened in my swing. And that if you ask them, where did you strike on the face? They don't even know. They're not even aware of that. They're so busy thinking about the mechanics of their swing. So, you know, getting those, we call them the big three down. And then from there, for me, it's about exploration. Can you hit more toe? Can you hit more heel? Can you hit more forward? Can you hit more behind it? Can you hit deeper, shallower into the ground? Can you hit it more right and left? That's the level I prefer to keep it at. But obviously there's, yeah, there's that danger as an instructor of going into the into mechanics there. And sometimes we can do that and it, it can it can be great. It can unlock something for someone. And sometimes you can ruin someone's career. It's very difficult to find that balance, but how do you coach now with all the information that you've gathered? And There's a temptation, right, in this world as coaches having to, from a marketing perspective, try to distinguish themselves, right? So there's the, like, I came from a world where I didn't need to self-promote. Just it was a, hey, it's either on the scorecard or it's not, right? So my success wasn't, I didn't need to market myself. But I would say that, you know, a lot of our, golfers out there are drawn to, right, the technology and and the deeper analysis. And I often have to go into that with certain golfers because that's how they're wired. I get a software developer in front of me or a Boeing engineer and right that I do feel it's very important for the golfer to understand why. I open with a new student. It's like, okay, here's here's what we're doing. You're raising your hand. And if you're asking questions, challenge me, ask why. Those are great questions because I think it's very important that there's buy-in. They understand because if there's struggle, they might stay on course, right, with it. But I am have a strong, strong leaning towards keeping it as simple as possible. And I feel that... You know, I've learned more about, you know, neuroscience of performance and how, you know, it's all tied together, right? And so when that active mind is full of things to think about just to execute a shot, you know, that mind is not on where we eventually want it, right? So out to target and, you know, creative visuals are going to see ball flight. So there. So my feeling is if I can frame a task so when I have a golfer in front of me and we might have that typical pattern, right? Where shaft steepens in the downswing, face is open, right? Path left, open face. So I could talk to them about wrist extension and flexion. I could talk about externally and internally rotating and all those different things. But I think of, okay, what is the golf shot that in order to pull it off would cause them to change all those things, right? So... 
I know there's more than one way to get path right and face left of path, but I normally say, let's show me a nasty hook. <laughs> Just hook it off the range, curve it left. If they hit it 50 yards left with a curve, I'd give them a good attaboy, <laughs> you know, audible, great job, keep going, and eventually now, now swing out to the right of your target. And it doesn't work every time, but it's a more fun. I mean, all of a sudden, yeah, I could post the before and after video and show you know, a shallowness of the shaft and the face that's squaring up and all those things. But I just think it's a more pleasant, efficient way to get people to striking the ball differently. So, so usually that's, that's me running what's going on through my software, you know, as a coach that I'm always trying to upgrade, find the cheat code or the hack, so to speak, or the shortcut to some better ball striking. So that's, that's my approach. So you like to get the shot to dictate the swing rather than get the swing to dictate the shot, right? Would that be a nice summary of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I want to give the golfer the opportunity to self-organize. And it doesn't always work, right? People have different levels of athletic skill and that sort of thing. But I'm trying to find the most efficient way to get them to strike in it better. Do you think one of the things I'm curious from your perspective, because you played... I don't know when the line in the sand is, whether it was the Pro V1 when it came out or when TrackMan came out and then how it evolved with technology, equipment, all that stuff. Let's talk about the professional level because I'm just curious about this. Do you think, how do you view the game when you played versus now? Like some people say like, oh, these guys are not as good as the players back then because it was a blotta and you had to shape it more differently. And now they're just kind of robots and they have all the TrackMan and the technology. So or is it there's more people, more athletic players coming to the game? Like, What are some of the big things you've noticed from playing in the 80s and 90s to now where it's like golf is a bit of a, you know, it's a big business and there's a lot more technology and knowledge around it. So what are some of the things you've noticed in the evolution of the game? Well, in there, one of your comments that bigger, better athletes, you know, that's certainly a, and better conditioned, right? So there's golf specific training and strength training and speed training and all that. And, you know, we have more six, two, six, three, at least in the men's game. Right. And it's across the board, the women's game too, but so certainly better athletes and what drew better athletes to golf, right? When I grew up, it wasn't cool to play golf, right? It was. And then in my lifetime, along came Michael Jordan, who he couldn't wait to get out and play golf. Right. So here's the most popular athlete in the world mentioning that golf was his favorite pastime. And there's stories of him playing 36 holes before a playoff game up here in Seattle when he played for the Bulls. <laughs> he was all, you know, and just that type of thing. And then, of course, Tiger came along. But the Michael Jordan and Darius Rucker, who you know, these athletes and celebrities from other areas, kind of, it's okay. It's okay to, golf is a fun sport and it's cool to play golf. So then now money, right? So now there's an upside financially for athletes to play the game. Right. And so I'd say that's number one equipment wise. I mean, I hate to say it, but when I first started on tour, we were using dynamic old X100 steel shafts with a wooden head on it. I mean, and so <laughs> when you think about when you think about the skill required, you know, that's not a very forgiving golf club. Right. So because of the equipment, we didn't go at it as full bore. Right. Because an off center hit, you know, had more consequences to it. So. 
then we have, obviously, we've had generations now who have had 460 cc's of club head, you know, and high MOI and that sort of thing. So, yeah, the equipment's played into it. The Pro V1 versus the Blotta, to me, I didn't think it was revolutionary. I know my friend Brandel Chambly thinks it was, and but I played in that era and kept playing the Titleist Professional because I felt it was more consistent. And then, as it turns out, the Pro V1 had a seam that where the ball was struck, if you hit it on the seam, it went further. And they obviously engineered that out of there. But but I would say the athletes are better. The coaching is better. They're better trained. But I would say that there were phenomenal players in my era and watching Nick Price hit a golf ball or the little bit I saw Lee Trevino. I don't think there's players now that strike it better. They're more powerful, but there's just more of them now, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of players at that level. If you had access to a track man and I mean, do you think you understood the ball flight laws intuitively when you were playing or was there some stuff that you know now that you didn't know back then that you were like, oh, I I think I could have played better had I had access to this info and tracking or or do you think it would would have not made that much of a difference? I know that's probably a tough question to answer. I'm just, it's actually pretty easy. I'm just curious. It's actually pretty easy. I, (laughs) at least I I have, I have an opinion on that and I'm going to share it that I think that the ability to, if somebody is hitting a golf ball, that's the same or similar to the one they play with in practice. And you know how far every ball you hit, how far it carries. I think it's really valuable. Now I figured that stuff out like the rest of us with, if I know it's 156 to the hole and I get up there and my pitch mark on the green is four yards short of the hole, I know it carried 152. So I could figure out how far I hit golf balls with certain clubs. But I think the dialing in of distances, you know, with really good, you know, launch monitor technology is great. I did not, if you ask me if the big question is, hey, we had it all wrong, the ball doesn't start where the path is. It starts where the club face is. Part of me was like, who cares? Who cares whether we... Yeah, that, that's what I'm who, interested to who know. Who cares like, did, if did, we did had that it really right? matter? Yeah, yeah, I figured it out. Yeah. I didn't know I was... I mean, you were still hitting great golf shots. I didn't so. need to know my path was four right versus two, and I didn't... Right? It's like the golf ball. It really tells us if we're paying attention what happened. But that's back to your point, Adam. People need to understand ball flight laws, right? So that's, you know, to really get the full benefit. But we just didn't use that language, right? I mean, we're, we're measuring things, but I didn't know what my horizontal swing plane was <laughs> and all this stuff, right? It's like, so we can get wrapped up in that. And quite frankly, it's, I would be concerned if I were aspiring to play at that level, with coaching that that involves the player into all of that, all of those numbers, because I just feel that it's still an athletic event when somebody strikes a golf ball, you know, and when you play the game and all of the variability that that we need to and adaptability that we need to develop or develop instincts for. And I think that I'm trying to think if it was Jim McLean or someone I was with not long ago. He mentioned he's super frustrated. He'll he'll be teaching, coaching a young player, and they'll hit the shot and they'll turn to look at the the data and not even watch the ball in the air. You know what I mean? They're not watching the ball finish its flight. I don't want to put my stake in the ground that I'm anti-tech. That's not the point. But I think that I, as a coach, I hold myself accountable. To what is the usefulness of this at this point in time? And is it for me as the coach or does the player need to know these things? So, you know, I can't 
hide them from the laptop on the range that, you know, those numbers are there. But, but I do feel like filtering it so that the athlete, the golfer, their awareness is on the right thing. So along those lines, there was a back when David Ferretti had an in-studio show. It wasn't his comedy type show, but it was a serious sit down. He had uh, three Harmon brothers coaches in there with him and they had a really interesting discussion. But at the end they were wrapping up the show and, and David asked the three brothers, okay, let's settle it once and for all. Who's the best coach? You know, kind of direct at which of you three is the better coach. <laughs> and all three of them in unison said the golf ball, you know, and I don't think it was staged. I think it's just kind of how they learned to coach and their father's influence and being around Hogan. But, but I think if, if golfers pay a little more attention to what the golf ball did and then try to figure out why, you know, and then come up with some corrections and solutions. And obviously we're all as coaches, we're here to help them figure that out. But I think that's very important for a player to learn that stuff. Again, it goes into how, how in-depth you want to go. And on in terms of the ball flight laws, I certainly, I even like to keep that simple. Now, I have written in the past the actual golf ball flight laws. You know, the ball starts 75% on the face and things like that. But, you know, we've talked about in this podcast how we don't use that information when we're playing. You know, when I'm hitting golf balls myself, I'm just very aware of what the club face is doing. If that ball went too far left, I'm going to try and open the face for the next shot and vice versa. Occasionally, I'll take a little peek at my path to make sure it's not getting too far out of hand. But you'll know if you hit a shot that's on target and it's curving too much to get there, you, you know your path's getting out of hand. But you know, even in terms of the old ball flight laws, we understood maybe incorrectly the percentages that the face and the path had on the starting influence. But we could still use the old stuff like if... The ball, if the face is too close to the path, the ball's going to curve left. You know, that was true in the old ball flight laws, and it's true right now. We just got the percentages wrong, that's all. So I don't, I mean, someone could quote me here, but I don't think I've ever said that uh, the old ball flight laws were useless, <laughs> you know, or our old knowledge was useless, but it was just a little incorrect. I suppose the time where it would have hurt us is if you're trying to hook it around a tree and you take everything too literal, you know, aim, aim the club face at the tree or you actually get the club face at the tree. But then there's that disconnect between what we feel we're doing and what we're actually doing. You know, when Faldo is writing the wrong ball fight laws in his book and he's saying, I aim the club face at the tree and I swing to the right, that might be what he felt he was doing, but he wasn't actually doing right, that. Right. But if you gave him the if you gave him the actual things, that would have made him worse because he already had something that was working for him. And to understand the right way wouldn't have made it better. Just like if I taught if I told someone how the mechanics of walking are, <laughs> and that's not going to help you walking if you're already doing it correctly. So yeah, right. sometimes there's, it's pointless mm -hmm. adding more knowledge, right? Right. Yeah. Along those lines, let me just tag in on that, Adam. That so I started working with a Division One college player up here, and a couple months ago, and there's a beautiful swing, like most of these guys, right? They're textbook swings, whatever. You can't you. So I walked up to him and, you know, I, I know him already, but I walked up. This is our first official, official session together. And I just said, gosh, you know what? Just so you know, as I pulled up in the cart here to the back end of our range, if somebody had said, hey, that kid down there, that young guy is 
20th in the world. I told him, I said, there's nothing I see you doing right now that would convince me otherwise, right? But of course, he's not there yet. So what is it, right? But but I was able to, you know, in our conversation, uncover sort of his belief system. And I always try to, if I can get the golfer, so if I can kind of find out what their belief system or swing theology or golf theology is, you know, then I'm going to know how to coach them. Right. And, and he exposed, I mean, he's always worked on getting a swing better. Right. And so you know, we had the conversation. It's like, maybe it's time to stop that portion of your development as a player or set it aside and learn all these other things. Right. So like an analogy would be somebody's picking apples off a tree and they're going to find a ladder because the app, the only apples on the tree are at the top. And it's like, yeah, you got a bunch of nice ones right at your feet. <laughs> you know, So there's some low hanging fruit or fruit, fruit laying on the ground for players to get better is I guess my point. And so I had him hit, you know, he hits a nice, beautiful draw typically. And I said, well, can you show me a little kind of a knockdown hold shot? And he hit it perfectly. I said, well, how far does that carry? And he had no idea. You know, so I'm like, okay, so those are things that I worked on instinctively, intuitively, but sometimes we assume the golfer is already doing those sort of things. So it's like, okay, so we got to get the track man out and you're going to train, see how far these different shots you hit carry. But there is some, I think, non-swing technique things that, you know, we're in a culture now of swing perfection, right? So Instagram, YouTube, and, and, and a lot of the things we're discussing here are very difficult for me to share on Instagram or Twitter, right? It's like, it's so individualized, right? So, but anyway, there's, I left my swing coach with five things to do every time. And we all know that we can't do five things at once, right? So the good news is we're learning a lot more about how people learn. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I think that's the hard, you know, I'm friends with a lot of swing instructors and what you said in the beginning of the episode kind of rang true is marketing and differentiating yourself. And if you want to become well-known and get great jobs at a top country club or have an online presence, like you need something that 
seems different. Simplicity and base, and, mm-hmm. and you're nodding your head right now. People yeah. can't see this, but for better or worse, that is what dictates the, the swing coach industry. Do you have a move, a mark, something, or or system? That people love the word system. Do you have something you can package up and sell? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. On, on the, it's a fault of the instructors. That's just the way it is. It's a really tough industry to get ahead. And people think it's like lucrative. And, and to be quite honest, it's really not for a lot of people. It's, it's a big struggle, a lot of time invested. And to get to the top, you need something to differentiate yourself. But I just find it so fascinating that even at the pro level, someone like Butch Harmon, guys are still going back to him after you know going to maybe some new coaches. I think Ricky Fowler is a recent example. Kind of going back home to this guy who just kind of looks at them and says like two or three things and is like, yeah, you're hitting it great. Good job. Versus... You had shared that quote with me that Ricky said about in 2021. He's like, yeah, when I was with Butch, I didn't know much about the swing. I know what I needed to know. And now I know way more. And you know, he was in the worst slump of his career. It's such a strange, tough thing because I guess the point I'm trying to make is that golfers are habituated to want that type of stuff, to know more, want this type of system and think that's going to make them better. But if anything, I mean, now you know Adam and Mai's philosophy, it's like to play your best golf and that athlete inside to perform on the course. I just don't think you could do it with that stuff in your head. It's so hard, but the industry is like built that way. Yeah. It's phases of development. There's right. The, the things that John Tillery was working with Ricky Fowler on. I mean, I'm sure I, I haven't met John, but I know he's a brilliant swing coach. And, and so I don't, I doubt there was any bad information at all. It's just change right? I mean, change or disruption. And, and if Ricky Fowler, you know, again, hypothetically hey, at 13 years of age, that might've been great, but I re- I can't remember what year it is. You guys might feel, but the year Ricky Fowler finished top four or five in all four majors, right? I mean, it's like in the shootout, I think he battled Rory down the stretch at the open championship. And it's like, this guy is world-class. And I know there's always criticism about the he hasn't won more. Well, that was because of the expectations because he was such a brand, right? But just an elite player for a long, long time. But somehow we get things as players in our minds that, ah, it's not right. You know, I'm flat and I steepen it in the downswing, you know, whatever. Well, let's, right. I think collectively we could list whatever half a dozen world-class players that didn't shallow it in the downswing, right? So, but we know that, Hey, from a physics standpoint, hey, it would be good to have that center of mass laying in a certain spot relative to the forces we're putting on the golf club. And but when you take somebody that's already world class, I wouldn't call where I was world class, but we talked about my experience earlier that, hey, I tried to get better and I got worse. And so I just think it's a careful calculation with really good golfers. But I do think that if I look at it this way, is that if I have a a golfer who's come to me for help and they've expressed what their goals are. I I think to myself, can they achieve those goals with what they have? Is that golf swing going to prohibit their success? Right. Then we start, then we get out the scalpel and start working on things. But, and somebody gets labeled as a swing coach, right? That's, is that truly all they do? And I think that's some are complete coaches. Others are specialists. And I do feel that, and this is, again, kind of my opinion, is I feel like we've got, there's an awful lot of specialists and narrowly focused instructors, and that's fine. 
but I just want to make sure that golfers understand. <laughs> so the golfer ideally is the CEO of this project, right? But sometimes you need sort of a generalist, <laughs> somebody that say, okay, so we have choices here. You know, this is how we're going to lose weight. <laughs> you know, you're going to eat less and you're going to exercise or we're going to do surgery or we're going to, right. There's a lot of choices, but I think that, yeah, we can run to, it's very important to develop a good golf swing, but what influences the golf swing? And I'm now not to ramble, but that golf swing was affected by your emotions, your, your mental state, you know, how committed were you? And so I think that I'd hate to see somebody go waste two hours on the range hitting balls when the problem was the mindset and the thought process <laughs> standing over the golf ball. So I think that that's why I continue to educate myself broadly is because I want to be able to, I don't have specialists with me. I'm a one man operation when somebody comes to me and I will refer out, you know, to physical trainers. And, but I really feel that that golf swing, ultimately the shot hit and back up to the golf swing, is highly influenced by what's going on in the head. So we got to evaluate that as well. Yeah, if you if you miss a shot and you flare it out to the right, you know, track man numbers are going to say face was open, path was X. But what it doesn't show is you are frightened of hitting it left on that on that swing because of the last hole or because you know, last time you played that course, you hit it left on this one. <laughs> and you've, so, yeah, yeah like you said, the emotions will influence certain things. Yeah. And it's interesting, uh, on another podcast, I do listen to your guys quite a bit and appreciate it. I've got a long commute every day and you're <laughs> often keeping me company. But Carl Morris had, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Izzy Justice. He told the story of, uh, so he works, I don't know who he works with on tour, but he was at a tour event and his client was, you know, he was there for a tournament round and this threesome finished their round. And one of the players, not Izzy's client, played a beautiful round, just beautiful in the 18th hole, just like you were describing Adam, just flared one way out of play, finishes with a double, and then heads to the range and hits drivers for two hours trying to fix it. And I guess Dr. Justice knows that player well enough that when the player left the range, he walked to him and says, hey, you played beautifully today. Nice round. Hey, do you mind me asking, what were you thinking on that 18th tee? And the player said, you know what? <laughs> Honestly, I just, I don't like that hole. I'm not comfortable there. And my last thought was, don't hit it left. And Dr. Justice says, well, respectfully, you just spent two hours working on the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so that's to your point, Adam, that, that I think that even in a, on the practice range, right. I have people that come to me and it's like, they're in no emotional state to work on their games. Right. I mean, the reaction to one less than perfect shot you know, is a meltdown, right? So we've got, right, this, this is no, this person is in no mindset to perform, leave, come back, you know, let's do this another time or whatever the answer is, or that player needs to not work on their swing. They need to work on their mental, emotional game, right? So it's a very holistic experience as a golfer and as a coach. I mean, most lessons that I just kind of witness whether it was me or just watching other people at the driving range with the teaching professional, most of it is, is about the technical elements of the golf swing. If you had to 
based on your playing record and everything you know now to get people to, whether it's the club golfer who wants to go from the 20 to a 10 handicap or a higher level golfer, if you had to design a program for the a modern teaching professional, what would you arm them with and tell them to talk about instead of just that five things to the, you know, the thing that you were left with, the five things about your swing and you go on the course with them? Like what, what would be your, your cornerstones of teaching now with everything you've experienced in your life? That's a big question. So maybe we can bite it off in little parts. I've gone about it my way and I continue to do it because I do think that it's the right direction. I'm not saying I'm making all the right steps and I'm the the most talented, the smartest coach out there, but. Oh, it's your philosophy and your opinion. But but I, I think that, that in general coaches need to be more broad meaning of understanding, right? That, we can be specialists, but if so, we need to involve others because like we did the example, we just get that, that somebody's mental or the, the mental state they were in when they hit the golf shot caused, like you were saying, Adam, the face to be wide open. So I need to understand the human being better. <laughs> Certainly we need to, there's an awful lot to, I think, to be a really, really good golf coach. It requires a lot of knowledge and understanding and then the ability to critically think and put it, pull it together. Right. And I think I referenced it earlier. I just think that as coaches, we need to be continually upgrading our software. Right. And that I know when I started teaching, I felt that, gosh, I'm, Hey, I'm charging somebody a hundred bucks. I need to give them something. Right. So I'm going to, Hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. Right. So it's a temptation. We haven't developed confidence and haven't had, all the positive experiences yet. But I would say that the business of coaching makes it difficult because historically it's been somebody's buying 30 minutes or an hour of my time, you know? And so, and there's this reaction, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. And they feel like, well, what are they going to leave with? Well, it's okay to say, listen, I can tell you haven't practiced as much as you said you were going to, you need to do the same thing for the next two weeks and I'll see you then, you know, I mean, you know, there's this temptation to give people more and more and more. And I feel like often we do that as coaches. So, but my philosophy is I'm driven to understand how it actually all works, right? We all know there's no muscle memory, right? So, so what created the movement? Okay. And, you know, you know there's a command center. And so if I don't understand how people learn to move, so to speak. And that's a great book I recommend to coaches by Dr. Rob Gray. And there's just, there's so much. We're going to have him on at some point. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it's wonderful. And prior to that, I read a book, Make It Stick, which was a general book, not about golf, but just how people learn and retain. Right. And so those are the kind of things that, and I've heard other coaches say, Hey, go outside of our, our discipline, so to speak. Right. Because those things affect, it's a human being right? That movement patterns shoot. Like if I have an older client, you know, the old dog, new tricks thing, it's a science proves we don't learn things as well as we get older, right? So this guy might have horrible movement patterns, but then this guy plays recreationally. It isn't changing significantly, right? So we, now we, now I'm going to more, okay, what's an accommodation, right? So all of a sudden, yeah, we're going to roll your hands as hard as you can. You know, I'm going to get a young athlete. We need to have body rotation to keep the club face from overtaking, you know? And so 
So it's like, it's very individual, but we have to understand all the cause and effect. And is this person, right? The TPI evaluation, can they move? Is the left hip out of whack? You know, well, then we're going to have to work around that or fix the hip. So broad, keep studying, keep growing. And we can't be good coaches if we're just in a silo, in my opinion. Yeah, one of the best exercises I went through early in my coaching is to, someone said, how, how would you change this player? How would you make them hit it better if you weren't allowed to tell them anything about the swing? Some people went the route of saying, you know, course management and things like that. Mm -hmm. Me being a mechanical player, I still went the mechanics route. And I was thinking, well, how would I get them to hit it more left if I couldn't change the motion? And there's some easy things out there. You could set the club face up left. There's there's no rule that says you can't do that. How would you make the path more into out? Well, there's no rule that says you can't aim their body 45 degrees to the right as well. How would you make them hit it more out of the toe or the heel? Well, if you set it up more out of the toe and made them swing exactly the same, they would. How would you make that ground contact farther forward? Well, you can move the ball a little back in the stand so you could raise their body height a little bit. So there's lots of really simple things that... I know that's that's the real low-hanging fruit, and lots of people resist that stuff because they see it as, oh, that's the wrong way to do it. But the reality is, like you said, if you get an older player who doesn't practice ever, they're not going to change their motor pattern, mm-hmm. we can use these little cheats. I yeah. mean, there's no reason why we can't. I mean, even as great players or as, as good players, like... If we're on the golf course and we need to shape it around a tree, we'll aim our body offline and close the face. Right. So why not just do that? <laughs> why not just do that as your stock shot? If that's what you need, if that's the easiest route for you to do it. I mean, obviously there are more players who are very, I want to do things the right way. And I still battle that, you know, being a perfectionist type A personality. But yeah, there's, there's so many different ways that we can skin the cat. And I think as a coach, being very adaptive to the person in front of us, being very creative with the solution. There's always, like I said, a million ways to skin the cat. So let's find the easiest one that also fits that player's long-term goals. It really depends on what, right, what the player wants. Do they have a tournament or a golf trip in two weeks or is it the off season, right? So it's just, right, there's all those different factors and that influence how we coach. So one thing I'm interested in hearing from you is I think pressure is very relative in golf. You know, the the pressure someone feels on the first tee as a beginner golfer is probably more extreme than some of the pressure you felt teeing off at a PGA tournament. And I'm curious how you talk to players about dealing with that. Like, just walk us through, like, you won a couple of PGA Tour events. You won some of the biggest amateur tournaments in the country. You've played in a ton of major championships, what did that feel like and how did you deal with your own expectations and the pressure and all these people watching you? Like, what was your way to get through that and perform well? The simple answer is, is I developed feels or let's say technique to control club face. Because <laughs> quite frankly, it's like to get the ball in play. And I know now, and I, I don't want to stand in opposition to all the data and the analytics and you know, all the stuff, course management stuff. I believe in all of it. Although I don't know if you've seen, I have a little tweak to it. You know, I feel like there's something missing in that, in all that algebra, but it's a negative phrase, but I feel like people need to have developed a choke shot. Okay. So, you know, I've gone through Rick Sessinghouse's flow code golf training program, 
And I very drawn to all of that stuff. So Dr. Justice's work and all this, because I know that mindfulness and breathing technique and heart rate control and all this stuff is wonderful, but I am still convinced that the tidal wave of fear will come crashing on you at that key moment, right? So as much as I'd like to think, we can pull everything in, get in that optimal performance state and just be completely relaxed and free and just let it rip. But my experiences, that's fantasy land. I think that you need to have, you know, Tiger had his stinger. I think it really set his game off to a next level is that basically he found a technique where his dispersion pattern was a little bit tighter, right, than letting it rip. And so for me, being a guy that had sort of the wrist inflection, club face, quote unquote, shut, it was to hang on for dear life. <laughs> you know, so I was, I believe, and I don't know if I developed that wrist position, club face position, because I was looking for something that held up under the pressure that you're describing, standing on the first tee, whatever. And listen, all of us, even professionals, the first tee for some reason does have a higher level of anxiety, you know, and as much as we try to, but I think that an amateur golfer that doesn't have the same skill level as a tour player, a lot of that fear is very justified. They're not very good. <laughs> they don't know where it's going, you know? And so I think there's, it's a combination of working on the, the mental, emotional aspect of performance, as well as a technique or a way to deliver a golf club where you have a, a higher level of confidence and contact and club face control. So, and we get into something that I would say that's that feels kind of thing. Like I had a feel, but it wasn't always the same. And I think Nicholas and Woods and all these guys have talked about some weeks, it's a little different, right? So you've got to be aware of what feels right. Okay. I don't think John, you're going to stand up there and hit faded into the fairway, right? Cause I listened to enough. That's not your shot, right? So it's never going right. to happen. So you might aim further right. I might aim more down the left and I know I literally can't make it not go left, but I think as a player, I kind of felt like I could. So I think that that becomes, now we're talking about the practical things that we should train. Most of your listeners aren't able to play as much golf as they want. So how do they develop a shot that they can trust? You know, whether it's the 18th hole to finish off a match or the first tee with people watching, how do you simulate that? Now you get into some, whether it's constraints led stuff or different training programs on a practice tee, right? So but I personally, and I know it, it goes counter to what a lot of people feel, but I actually, I like having people hitting a variety of golf shots as they're practicing. That doesn't mean they have to use it on the course. Yeah. How, yeah. I was going to say, how do you train that? How do you draw that out of a player? Do you just get them to hit a bunch of different shots and see what feels more comfortable or... What's your, what's your method to draw out a stock shot or a pressure shot? Okay. So the stock shot is something that, and the pressure shot might be the same, same shape. Absolutely. It most likely would be, but it might be if a player has a pattern where path gets excessive one way or the other, right? That I would say exercises where I'll have somebody, okay, there's the flag. It needs to start left of it and curve right. Okay. And so if somebody is excessively into out and the club face is out of control, right? So weight's probably back and, you know, there's the, the pull hook. So we'll usually, you know, I'll counter train, right? Just 
from a training to, to neutralize path and, you know, find face and all that. So I think we see nowadays, right. That most players under the pressure, if we're looking at shot tracer on the television, that there's more of a tendency with driver to hit a ball for a right-handed golfer that works left to right. And John, for you under pressure, it might be, it's, it's less curve. I don't know, but I mean, it's just, I feel like the under pressure that less club face rotation, whether somebody's curving it one way or the other is typically a way to gain a little bit more control under pressure because the pressure creates tension. So I tend to coach people into a shot that where we can embrace tension. I don't know if that makes sense. Like for me, I'd hold on a little harder with my lead hand to try to prevent the club face from turning over. Right. So, so when you say hold on tighter, you mean stopping the rotation? Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. And so that's something that worked for me. And I don't want to project that into all golfers, right? Because everybody has different shot patterns. But yeah, it's just, and I did the same thing with putting. I was, I kind of had a reputation of being an excellent putter, led the tour one year in the statistic. And, and it's interesting, you know, my feeling, I've had a lot of, of luck with uh, amateurs who have, they're right-handed and they putt right-handed and they feel the right hand is the problem, right? Because they feel like it's out of control, kind of yippy. That I would say more often than not, <laughs> and they might be in a claw, they might be in a holding it where the two hands are kind of together rather than separated, that that if we let the right hand take over, they do better. I mean, I'm right-handed. Why would I take my right hand out of play? It's like, no, the confusion might be this other hand that's on there. So anyway, but the whole thing is like, let's work with... So then in putting, when I had big putts and there's a lot of pressure, I didn't hold it lightly. I controlled the darn thing. These are different things for people to experiment. They've heard typically, hey, if right hand's too much of a problem, go to the claw, go to whatever, left hand low. But sometimes just let, let your natural instinct, you're very right-handed, let's let you putt with the right hand. But anyway, so back to the plane under pressure, we want to find what works for them. Obviously it's complicated to throw everybody in the same bucket, but I would say you need to have a shot that performs with tension. We want to eliminate tension ideally, but it needs to be functional with tension. I think yesterday I had the most pressure packed situation I've ever had in my golf life. To your point, it ended well for me. I played really well. I guess this wraps up a lot of the concepts that we seem to agree with you on is that there was not one swing thought. It was the same exact thing I'm trying to do all the time. There, there's no difference in it. And that's why I tend to focus more on process and my breathing and making it this walking meditation, because that just keeps me aware of what's going on in the moment. And that might not work for everyone, but at least from, I, I didn't have any technical things ringing around in my head because I don't try and I agree with your philosophy on, messing around on the practice range to establish the stock shot. If I'm overhooking the ball years ago, I had to figure out how can I counteract that? I'm going to try and slice the crap out of it just to see what that feels like. But as I deal with more and more pressure in tournaments and stuff, this is what I'm trying to figure out and, and stumbling upon is that if I can have all my attention, because there isn't unlimited attention in those moments, you're going to get distracted quite easily on my breathing, my walking pace, my routine, and not, oh, what am I going to do with my 
path here or something like that. It's just so instinctual that I'm not worrying about that part of it. Whereas I think, you know, if I stepped up to these situations seven or eight years ago and it took a lot of failures and there will be plenty more, it was more golf swing. What am I going to do not to screw up here with my golf swing? But yeah, I don't think there's a right answer forever. I'm just, I'm always interested to hear what someone like you, you know, you want at a high level. I was just curious, like what was going through your head? Because it's not the same for everyone, but I do kind of agree with you. You have to eliminate the variables so you can have that one thing that is so natural and you can count on that you at least, again, we're trying to just reduce dispersion, right? right. <laughs> I really agree with that. I think that's a great point. Right. I think that we've created a culture, right? There's a culture where everybody thinks the problem was the swing or, you know, whatever, something technical. And even if you listen to a telecast and a commentator is talking about, yeah, that was a great swing. Well, it was a great shot. Was the swing really measurably different than the one on the previous hole that missed the green to the right and that sort of thing, right? And and Adam, it's like, yeah, hey, so the what was going through my mind may have been why I was three degrees off with my club face, right? So, so I just think that, you know, I obviously have expressed, I have a preference to find solutions that are not swing changes. And I'm not opposed to them, but this I know from firsthand and now watching for years and years, people struggle with swing changes that if we can come in the back door, you know, if it's quicker and shorter, I'm okay with that, you know, and I think a lot of people feel like, hey, you're, it's a Band-Aid fix. It's like, well, no, it's not, in my opinion, if it actually works, right? And I've seen it where, my gosh, I, I at one point I was pointing, you know, posting before and after V1 swing videos of my student. It's like, look what I did and look at the timestamp. It was eight minutes, you know, <laughs> they went from steep and open face and crappy and then the next one was everything looked perfect down the line and they crushed it. Right. So, you know, it's like, yeah, we can, but guess what? I just changed what they're, what they're trying to do with, I'm trying to think of who, who mentioned it, but basically you think of, okay, what's the golf shot I want to hit? What does the golf club need to do to create that ball flight and then make the club do that? Right. And so I think that, that sometimes as coaches, we start, we're out of order a little bit. We get involved too soon. And I think that silence is the hardest thing for a coach, especially when we're new, right? It's like, but I typically let them know, hey, a new student, yeah. Hey, I'm, you You want me to take some time, right? To look at the MRI and this, that sort of thing, so to speak, the video and TrackMan data. And then I'll go off and then come back with, the suggestion. I think that too many coaches feel rushed and I think it's the expectation of the golfer sometimes, right? John, you alluded to it earlier that we have a lot of coaches out there not making much money, right? It's just, it's kind of a tough business. And if you live someplace like me where it's seasonal and, you know, you got people want people with PhD degrees to continue to learn for 50 grand a year, you know, type of thing. And so I think that the expectation of the, the amateur that, it's like, what? What do you charge, Adam? That's crazy. It's like, well, you know, if you want the best attorney, right, that's going to get to a resolution quickly and you're going to win, right, it might be money well spent. So, you know, I come against like a, a lot of people that, oh, they have a 10 lesson package for this much. How come? Why don't you offer that? And it's like, well, what if we can get you where you want to go in two lessons? 
wouldn't that be better for both of us? Right. And so, so I think for your listeners, it's like, don't let, obviously everybody has a budget. Yes. There are phenomenal instructors out there given, given lessons for $40 for half an hour, but then sometimes the more expensive coaches might be worth it. Yeah. It's like the plumber analogy when a plumber comes in and fixes your toilet in five minutes and that, that'll be $300. And you're like, that was five minutes work. And say, like, yeah, but that it was 30 years of my life to learn how to do that in five minutes. Right. Correct. Yeah. And I'm fascinated with, and, and again, I haven't, it's been years since then I've, since I've spent a lot of time out on tour, but I find it very interesting, right. That, and maybe one day I'll be out there coaching, but it's like, what the heck are they, what are we <laughs> Every single week, right? Yeah. What are you What are you talking about? What are you guys what doing? Could be that different? What are you guys doing? Right. Yeah. And so, so I'm. I mean, aren't aren't they mostly like just psychologists at this point to them? Just making them. I have to believe the pressure is so immense that you just want someone to be around to make you feel comfortable and feel good yeah. about. Yeah, things. and there's value in that, right? You know, yeah, I, there has to be a lot of yeah. that. Oh, right? absolutely. And I think that right. We talked about earlier. I think that's one of Butch's strengths. Right? Is that. You know, you can yeah. see him walking up. They're having a good time, right? He and his guys, right? And they're having a good practice round, having a good time. And I think I think a good coach knows how to get the player into the right mental state, say the right things and recognize when, yeah, okay, I agree. We're in, we're in trouble here. We remove the pressure. You still can't hit it solid, you know? So we do need to dive into what's going on with your golf swing. But I think that, yeah, I would think a lot of the time is helping them prepare to be ready. And a lot of that is you know, not in an artificial way, but to build up their confidence and, and obviously be there for what to answer questions and that sort of thing. But yeah, they're, and they're all different, right? That some of them are, their strengths might be that mental side and others might have just a great quick eye to see, yeah, okay, I know when this player is at his best, he's set up a little open and he's getting a little shut, you know, and so there's eyes to catch them. So there's great value. I'm not you know, trying to downplay that, but but I'm wondering about... You know, you've got a putting coach with you every week. I'm like, my God, my, my wife can putt. I mean, it's like, you know, you just get the ball rolling at the right speed on this line and learn to read it, right? So I just, right, I, I think that, you know, we can all be overcoached. And here I'm kind of underselling my my business, but I, I think that the model that we're moving into is that coaching model, right? And a lot of a lot of instructors are moving to that and you get somebody that's paying you monthly and they have access to you online and maybe a couple hours a month. And if they're, you know, within the area. And, and I think then it's good for both player and coach is that, you know, it's not, you're not having to condense all your coaching into that one little experience, but you can communicate in between. And I know it's one of the few sports where I think that when you get to a certain level, thinking of an infielder, how often do they work on throwing technique in baseball? I don't know. You guys might have an answer, but not me. No, when you get to that top level, aren't we done at some point? And I, I got myself. I think I probably put my neck out there a little too far when I, I made a comment to a group that, that I really believe that a young player can be done developing their golf swing by the time let's pick a number, sixteen, seventeen years old. Right? We've all seen the videos. You see twelve-year-olds with swings that Charlie Woods, whatever, right? And they're going to go through changes in their physique. But I mean, really, is is there some flaw in that technique that's going to hold them back? And I just think that we've kind of overplayed swing perfection. And it's about developing the ability to, along your lines, Adam, you know, strike plan. I mean, can you hit a solid? Can you control face? And then you kind of reverse engineer from there. But I do think that there's time and place for a great swing coach. And I just, I've chosen to be a little bit more diverse than just that. 
that's why like I, I don't have the expertise to teach the golf swing and I'm just not interested in it. But the thing that I'm fascinated by is the human element of golf is, you know, the stuff you've been saying, like, well, what are you thinking about before you swing or, you know, knowing targets and your yardages. And there's this whole other realm of human skills, whether they're analytical, emotional, that is so fascinating about the game that I, all golfers know this. Like we all know it's a, a highly mental game and, and the way you behave and, and your thoughts on the course can absolutely dictate the outcomes of your swing. And I think that is becoming more and more of a trend, which is great to hear. But, you know, I hope one thing that people will get out of this episode is that when you are working with, an, with a coach or an instructor that, you know, it's okay to ask about the other things as well, right? It, it, you can't just expect to get this laundry list of swing things because they are under a lot of pressure to give them to you, right? Like you have those people coming to you and checking prices and saying, well, this guy's going to give me this. What are you going to give me? And I just don't think that and the coach is put in a very difficult position because they, they almost have to give it to these people because that's what they think they're paying for. Mm-hmm. Don't ask for that. <laughs> if they give you one thing to think on and say, work on that for the next month, I believe that's the way to go. But also the more human element to the game, which is I think not all instructors or coaches have your playing ability and your background. I don't think you have to be a great player to be a good swing coach. But if you are going to be talking about the other parts of the game, like, yeah, you you, you do want to listen to someone who can play at a certain level. and And I think that human part of the game is so so important and just it's still yeah it's game covered more and more but still not enough in my opinion yeah fair enough i think there's i would say that obviously it's my background right to have played at a high level i don't currently play at a high level but i know i haven't forgotten it right and so that helps but i do feel like these other areas that i've mentioned that are areas that i'm learning a lot about no, I don't have a PhD in neuroscience or like Rick Sessinghouse has one in applied sports psychology, but I can learn from those guys, right? And I don't claim to be that an expert in that field, but I feel like I can be a very effective generalist or head coach type of thing. So, right, there's a place for all these different people. And so coaches that didn't play at a high level, I don't believe that disqualifies them from ever working with a elite player, you know, to hit great shots under pressure. I just think it it allows me to get there a little quicker. Right. And so, but I've also learned in coaching that, that I was very careful not to project my experience into that of the golfer I'm working with. Right. Cause that's, that's kind of our default. You come from being a really good player and you start coaching. It's like a buddy, you know, John, if you're playing a buddy and you're struggling a bit, often they're going to offer advice and often the advice is something that they've been working on. Right. So it's like, I think a a former player who gets into coaching, that's something to be careful of. And I was very guarded about not doing that, that because my feels were all coming from a square to close club face. And I got to recognize that's not the same feel for others. That's an interesting thing. How Hogan's book you know, everything that he said in there or the vast majority of it related to him trying to solve his snap hook, whereas the vast majority of golfers slice it. So lots of players will get his book and say, yeah. right, I need still to... the number one book. It's yeah. still the number one selling you're, you're book. You're tracking he it because yours, yours is moving up. <laughs> I was beating it for a good two yeah. months and then he went back on top again. So 
I'll probably get skewered for this, but I got a lot more out of Harvey Pennick's book than Ben Hogan's book, to be honest. That's right. just me. I think some people have read Hogan's book. I mean, there's a guy out there with a YouTube channel who models his mm-hmm. whole game after Hogan's swing and he's playing great. I mean, anything could work. I read the book and I, I just was like, I don't know how I can translate this to my game. It sounded great, but again, it was, I'll be careful with my words here. And John, I think that, right, it's, it may or may not make for an interesting podcast. You'll find out. You'll see what people think of this, of this one <laughs> to have people that I'm not going to say we're in violent agreement, but I mean, there's a lot of overlap and kind of our approaches. But I I think that like the more I learn, I enjoy the process of learning new things. And so that's never, nobody's going to need to push me to read books, go through courses and, and that sort of thing. But I have found, and I'm guessing Adam, it might be, I don't know your, the full story of how you got to where you're at. But my experience is that the more I know, the deeper I dig, the simpler I'm able to make it, you know? And so it's, I think sometimes the presumption is that the simple coaching is less science-based. And I have found the more I understand the science, okay, of how the golf club moves, how a human moves, how a human learns and how a human performs and on and on and on. So this holistic approach that the more efficient I can be in helping people and the simpler it may sound. And so that's one of those things from that marketing standpoint. It's like, yeah, people are drawn to complex, right? They think it must be better. This guy knows, gal knows more than me or the other coach because they use the big words. You've probably noticed that I'm trying to do a better job, but some of my Twitter posts can be a little sharp on the edges, uh, so to speak. But it's like, I think I mentioned something that paraphrase like, okay, so when you sit at the table to your meal and as you reach for your fork, will you externally or internally rotate your arm to stab the food, <laughs> grab your food, right? No, you just do it, right? You just, at this point, now when we were young, that was a skill to be learned, right? And I just feel like, I don't think my student needs to know internal, external flexion, extension, you know, all this stuff, right? I'm ready for them if they want to do it that way. I still don't fully understand all those. And look at, and look what <laughs> I hear Adam say, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, it, well, I really it's an don't accurate description it's, and still. it helps, you know, as coaches for us to, right. Yeah, if we don't use that, you need to know it. If you're going to teach the golf swing, you know, we obviously. had bowed and cupped, you know, we had these, so yeah. we've, but they're accurate terms. And I think it's right in the context of coaches getting together. And then some of our students really want to know that stuff. But, but the point is, is that we still self-organize. Hey, we already know how to, I think, Adam, we talk about it. we already know how to walk. If we start thinking about walking, our gait might be more clumsy, right? Because we have the prefrontal cortex getting in the way. We're good, right? So, so I think that we want to move towards simple, and then we can perform athletically. I was looking at you know like the Einstein quotes about if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I'm really like I feel very connected <laughs> to some of those. That's sort of a summary of kind of my approach is that I think the better I understand it, the more effective and the simpler I can be, you know, with, with golfers. Well, it sounds like a lot of your success as a player was through instinctive performance. It sounds like you practiced in a experimental, fun and playful way. You figured out how to hit a ton of shots and you went on the course and you saw that and you hit them. 
And then maybe when you started thinking about too much about why uh, the hows and the whys, I guess that that stopped you from being that player for a bit. And I think that story can play itself out. Again, you were so skilled to begin with, obviously, like you're such a high level player, but in the context of, you know, the golfer who is trying to get better and has a lot to lose, like, yeah, there's certainly value in tearing things apart and building them back up because you got nothing right. to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually you do want to get to that point. And that's what I'm always trying to tell people. Like, if you want to get better at golf, you need to see shot and just hit, just right. go. I've been the player who stands over the ball thinking about for a long time, I saw some sh- instructors that tried to take fix my takeaway. And I was just like, oh, I got to fix this takeaway. I never did, but I spent years thinking about it and focusing on it. It never allowed me to hit the golf ball I, the way I wanted to. So I just said, screw it. I'm just going to have this weird takeaway. And yeah, here I am. Right. But, and I know we're running along, but I it, would say, I would say at the time, I don't, I don't know yeah. if you did it, but I would, if somebody else, a, a listener is kind of in that state where it's like, hey, they're working so hard on changing backswing, right? Just make sure if you haven't, Ask why. Why is it important for me to change that? And have make sure the coach can explain that. Because not to be critical, but just that, you know, I think we all have a heart for the struggle. And if the struggle isn't necessary, then let's avoid it. <laughs> let's work on something else. But absolutely, the, the takeaway, the backswing can set up a, a horrible train wreck. <laughs> you know, but, but also there may be a compensation, right? Like you decided you're going to play the ball significantly right to left. Your handicap's dropping. You're competing at a high level, and that's where you're. Well, in all truth, the ball flight is pretty straight. Oh, okay, now, Rick. all right. The curve's okay. gone. It's it's almost uh-huh. like I think I'm hitting like a. I don't even look at TrackMan numbers, but I'm pretty sure my my face is outside my path now. I'm just hitting oh, okay. a push straight. Okay, push. got it. Yeah, and so there's no. <laughs> in any yeah. event, that's yeah. where I'm at. But I didn't think about what it took to get there. Technically, I just same as you as what's the ball doing and just making adjustments Mm -hmm. there. And it's okay. So my vote is, Hey, listeners out there, they don't hand you trophies based on pictures or your swing. So make it effective. That's my vote. All right. Well, we're nearing the end of our time here. You've got to probably get to the lesson T. Do you have time for a quick story, a quick, like two minute story you can tell Mm. us from your playing? I'm just curious. You know, you, you probably played with so many, players over the years, maybe some people we know, don't know. Is anything that sticks out to you from your time on the PGA Tour? doesn't have to be controversial, but just something cool that sticks out to you. You're like, There's a couple, so I'll choose one of them. So my second and final win was at a tournament that we used to play at, down at Walt Disney World. I came down to, so we're on the, I guess the Magnolia course, the 17th hole. There's water you hit across and all this stuff. Well, I've got a narrow one shot lead and I drive it in the edge of the left rough. I'm in play, but now I'm playing out of Bermuda rough, which, you know, I think even today with today's technology, you're still concerned about a ball jumping a little bit of a flyer. The pin was all the way back, right over a bunker and there's a pond or water to the right. So pre decade, (laughs) I chose a target (laughs) to the center of the green, right? And they hit this shot and I feel it going to the right. And I look up and it's traveling at the bunker and at the flag. And sure enough, it carries the bunker and ends up about two feet from the hole. So there's a plug for choosing a good target so that the far right part of my dispersion pattern turned out just fine. So it was nice to play the last hole with a two shot lead. <laughs> the other story would be back up. Uh, I played it the first time I played at Augusta as an amateur 
nervous as all heck, finally get to the first tee. And literally, I was worried when I started bend over to tee up the ball, whether or not I'd be able to get the ball on the tee just because of the shake shakiness. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm 60 now. I was like 19 then. So it's, so it wasn't a case of the nerves, but it just kind of hit me. Right. So that's that tidal wave of Holy cow. I knew I'd be nervous, but what is this? Right. And get up there. And I mean, now all those thoughts, right. I mean, this is that first T story. It's like, I'm thinking about hitting straight off the toe into the media tent. I mean, right. All those horrible things that are, Everything was in play. Everything was in play, right? And, you know, fortunately, you know, I just, the swing was a blur. I didn't even feel it, don't remember it, but just flushed it. And yes, in 1983, I was using a McGregor persimmon driver and just creamed it down the left side, but it went literally like 30 yards farther than normal out into the ninth fairway. Okay. So, I mean, it's, if, if you, I don't know if you stood and looked at that tee box, but there's, you know, it, that was down the left side of the fairway, but it was just too far. And to get up there and back then for close to 40 years ago, the trees weren't very big. And so it was just a simple like nine iron up over the trees and a back left pin and hit a beautiful shot that was up about 10 feet from the hole and trickled off to the fringe. So now I'm like, okay, cool. We're off and rolling. I've got about an 18 footer for birdie. And I get back into the first fairway from the ninth and walk up and the, the patrons behind the green are making all sorts of noise, laughing and hollering. And I look up and in the bunker in front of the green is a black lab, big old dog racing through the bunker, making a mess, just playfully having a great old time, which, you know, you don't see that on the grounds of Augusta normally. And I'm starting about 40 yards away from where my ball is. And I realize I'm in trouble because that dog came out of the bunker. And of course, what caught his eye, that golf ball sitting up there. So oh, and as God. only a dog can do <laughs> kind of without breaking speed, picked it up in his mouth and was gone. So, so then I had to call for an official and figure out what, what do I do? I had a pretty good idea, but I want to make sure I get it right. Sure enough, because I'm on the fringe, I've got to drop it. And of course the ball rolls like one and seven eighths club lengths down off the green. So now I need to chip it at least in mind I needed to. So now all of a sudden, am I going to chunk it or whatever, but chipped it up to about a foot and we got out of there, but that's a pretty unique story, right? I don't think. A nice, uh, in, yeah. Nice introduction <laughs> to Augusta. Yeah, that broke the ice, <laughs> broke the ice. But anyway, so a lot of, a lot of fun experiences and obviously there's stories that probably shouldn't be shared, but fortunate. I played a lot with, you know, everything from Greg Norman to Nick Price and to all those guys. And just, uh, it was, it was a fun 17 years. What's your awesome. lowest round on tour? 62. So that's nothing okay. crazy. Well, that's yeah. pretty, pretty good. Pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. 10 <laughs> pretty under. Good. Um, <laughs> that's what, pretty good. <laughs> what were you thinking during that time? What, I mean, you can keep this brief. If yeah. You run off. So try to make this brief. So I finished second two consecutive years at what was then the Bob Hope classic out and so you know playing a a series of you know they're not at that time a lot of kind of club type courses but I drove the ball well I my offline shots were not very far offline so that week on these shorter courses I used driver a lot more than most guys and I was average length so it wasn't I was short but I became I look back on it I was Bryson those weeks a little bit you know, because I'm hitting driver down there and hitting these little wedges and other guys. And how far were you driving it just for uh, context? <laughs> so I think the average, I was at middle of the road, it was probably 265 or something, right? So 
And that was you feeling like you were crushing it. Well, that was a solid one. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I'm just, yeah. I'm not, it's it just, I, I bet if you were playing today, that would have been 300, yeah. 305. So, probably, and right? Adam, maybe you've done this experiment or John, you as well. I have, I, uh, I have, yeah, I lost 30 yeah, yards. 30 yards. <laughs> so, I'd roughly, the equipment from then till now, and this is not ball related. I don't have balls from 30 years ago. But it's 30 yards of carry and 30 yards total is the testing I've done. So, yeah, so I 295, whatever, which is, I guess, five yards below tour average or so these days. But anyway, you know, courses have lengthened. There's no question about that. And most of our practice facilities are now inadequate. Where I'm at the nicest course in the state of Washington, and we have tour players out there. Cam Davis is one of our members, and there's no place for him to hit driver. You know, and then we're we're actually clearing an area and that sort of thing. Or we had the Pac-12 College Championships there in April, and every single driver, every Pro V1 hit was in the brush. So the game has changed a lot. Well, Brick, we thank you for your time. Where can everyone find you? You have a website. You got Twitter. Where are you located online? Yeah. So last name is Fair F E H R. So FairGolf.com is the website, and then on Twitter and Instagram at FairGolf. So I'm probably, I'm a lot more present on Twitter at this point. I don't photograph very well. No, I'm just kidding. So, and then I'm working on some coaching programs that, that people can, can uh, seek me out remotely if they want. That's going to be coming in the next 30 days or so. Great. Well, Rick, we appreciate your time. I'm sure you're going to get to the lesson T now. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Back to work. Thanks guys. Good. Thanks. Okay. Adam, where can everyone find you? Adamyounggolf.com. John, where can people find you? Just buy my book at this point. That's all I'm shilling. <laughs> Four Foundations of Golf on Amazon. <laughs> on a serious note, thank you to everyone for listening and your feedback. And we will see you next time with a new episode.